Hello everyone, I'm Lily. I'll be reading from the Bible. We're reading Luke chapter 22, starting from verse 66, and then we'll go to chapter 23 to verse 25. So I'll let you flick open to that real quick. Cool. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer me. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you say that I am. Then they said, why do you need any more testimony? We have heard from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus answered. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted, he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way from here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he heard that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed him and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us, as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. Uh, and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! From the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I'll have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant the demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. This time last week, everywhere was flooding. But today, uh, I just drove into church and I saw about 50 of you at the, you know, at the Oval over here welcoming new people to our church. Uh, what a good week we've had to be able to come out of that terrible torrential rain and then to come here tonight to be able to sing. It's been a good week. But the coming week is even better because we've got Easter. We've got Good Friday this week, Easter Sunday, 
Uh, we've got the forgiveness of sins that we preach and we hear about and we just rejoice in. And we have the hope of resurrection and eternal life. These are the good things we're looking at in the coming weeks. So to gear up for the good news of Easter, today we're looking at the passage before the Easter passage. We're looking at the story before the Easter story. And it's to prepare our hearts for worship so that we can go into this week with the right attitude. The key verse for today is verse 67. I invite you to look at that with me just from the beginning. Verse 67. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. So this is the conclusion and the question. The conclusion by the council is no, he's not the Messiah. That's what they decided long before the council. And the question that the reader is invited to ask is, but is he the Messiah? Is this trial fair? And what do we make of this man, Jesus? The conclusion that this particular group of Jewish leaders came to was predictable. After all, what we heard last week is that they arrested Jesus with clubs and they even, the last verses of the passage from last week, they blindfolded and hit him and insulted him. Their verdict was made before the trial. Why were the Jewish leaders so anti-Jesus? Why did they want him to be killed? Well, I just want to take a minute to pause and just respond to a concern that would be in our local neighborhood, in our community. Here in St. Ives, we have a large Jewish community all around us. There's a community in St. Ives, another one in Bondi, and then a lot of Jews in, in Melbourne. And so we are a place where people like to live as a Jewish community. And uh, my Jewish neighbor said to me last year, is it true that the churches teach that Jesus, that Jesus was killed by Jewish people? He asked that because he was obviously anxious about you know, an anti-Jewish sentiment, which we have to take you know, take seriously, because if you think about world history, the Jewish community have copped it pretty bad. We obviously know about the world wars and everything experienced there, but it can be a bit of a history lesson rather than close to home for some of us. For some of you, it will be very close to your personal family circumstances. But if you go and sit with a local Jewish uh, family in our community, you might find that they've got some really big stories to, to tell. I did that on the 27th of January this year, which was the International Day of Commemoration for the victims of the Holocaust. And you hear from Jewish people how big it is and how close to home it is for them. The Jews have suffered so much, but it's not just the Holocaust. That's the obvious story. I don't know if you're aware, but going back into the Middle Ages, uh, there were a variety of people labeled Christians who apparently massacred Jewish people and held them responsible for the killing of Jesus. So it's not without precedent that my neighbor is a bit nervous about this teaching. And, uh, you know, if you look around the local Jewish community, you see that there's a heightened anxiety. Go to the local Jewish school. There's extra security guards than what you're used to at your other schools in Sydney. And then you'll notice that they carry guns because in Israel, everyone's used to firing guns because everyone has to be trained for the military because Israel are always at war. And so they come with this fear that we would be teaching in our church an anti-Jewish sentiment. 
Are we anti-Jewish? Well, if you look at this passage, some people may use this as a weapon to be anti-Jewish, but I want to make it very clear that if you dig a little deeper, that this passage is not anti-Jewish, and in many ways, uh, yes, the Jewish leaders in this moment are responsible for the Easter story, for the death of Jesus. However, there was no one standing with Jesus when he was crucified, and all people are shown to be in need of salvation and forgiveness. Also, these Jewish leaders don't represent every single Jew that ever lived. They represent a particular group. And so I say all this for the benefit of our Jewish neighbors who I hope are actually listening to this and maybe you'd share it with some of your Jewish friends because we want to extend an arm of care and we want them to know that we do care and that we're not anti-Jewish. I also would like to say it for our community that we need to be careful for the way that we treat the local Jewish community. They're very encouraging to us. Um, I've, I, I live on a street with a variety of Jewish people and uh, at Easter they come and bring us chocolate and they say Happy Easter to us and they give us gifts. And that inspires me. They, they did it first. And so that inspired me to want to give gifts back at Passover, which has been the last 24 hours. All the Jewish community have been celebrating Passover this year. Also, I'm encouraged in our community that we've got people that are praying for Rabbi Gad Krebs, who had a major health crisis. He's planning to move back to Israel as the local rabbi, um, but his health has prevented and slowed things down, and he's got things going on, and we've been having members of our church praying for Gad Krebs, and we're pleased to hear he's progressing. His health is progressing. I want to say all this because Christianity is not anti-Jewish. In fact, Christianity is from the Jews. Our Bible is almost entirely written by Jewish people. At Bible college, we learn Hebrew because the Old Testament is written in Hebrew by Jewish people. And it's passed down to us by the Masoretes. We use the Masoretic text. And the Masoretic Jews were so faithful in, um, I guess, what's the right word? They kept... The scriptures for us, preserving is the word I was looking for, thank you, whoever said that. They've preserved the scriptures for us so that we actually have our Old Testament. Not only that, the New Testament is actually written by Jews because at first all the Christians were Jewish people. Jewish people believed that Jewish Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and they wrote the Gospels and then they spread that message to other parts of the world so that now I, a Gentile, now we, a church, exist in a, in a, and we claim Jesus as our saviour, he is our Messiah, and in that sense the Jewish community have become a light to the world. So if you're a Jew listening to this, we want you to know that even as we look at this passage which speaks about the Jewish leaders seeking the death of Jesus, we are not anti-Jewish, we have respect for our Jewish heritage, but we do challenge the verdict of this particular Jewish council who condemned Jesus as a false messiah. It's not a verdict that we accept. And it's also not a verdict that all Jews accept either. There are many Jews who regard Jesus as the messiah. And the first Christians were Jews who went from synagogue to synagogue. And if you go through the book of Acts in the New Testament, we hear 
that they sought to persuade people that Jesus is the Messiah of the Torah and the Scriptures. But this council rejected Jesus. They aren't asking if Jesus is the Messiah, even though they are asking. But they're asking to prosecute him. They want to catch him out. They're looking for his confession. And that's made clear in verse 71. They said to him, Why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips. This is a prosecution trial. They are seeking a confession. So to get the outcome they want, they escalate it to the Roman prefect, Pilate, um, who has more legal authority than they do. And Pilate asks Jesus a very similar question. It's the question of the day. What is it? Verse 3, Pilate asks Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Same question. Are you the Messiah, a king? And this is a very intelligent question, For someone who's coming at this case pretty cold, he wouldn't have heard overly that much about Jesus, although Herod, we heard, has a great history, even with the John the Baptist story you might remember. But Pilate himself, when he asks this question, shows his wisdom and tact because he takes the words of the Jewish people and he asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? But he removes all of the kind of vitriol and inflammatory language cuts to the heart of of the issue in a way that comes across as neutral and just says, are you the king of the Jews? But Jesus doesn't really answer the question. He puts the emphasis back on the questioner. And that, in a way, slows the whole story down and invites us to ask the question, is he the Messiah? In the end, Pilate doesn't buy the Jewish sentiment. He thinks that it's overplayed. And he says that he's unconvinced Jesus is worthy of death and he announces that he finds no basis for the charge, verse 4. But the Jewish assembly push back and they insist. And so verse 5 we read, he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and he's come all the way here. He's moving around creating chaos is the claim, and their passion is growing louder. But at that point, Pilate realizes, oh, he's from up north, that's Herod's jurisdiction. Guess what? Herod's in town. Let's send you to talk to Herod, maybe getting it off his plate a bit, putting it in someone else's responsibility. Um, But this isn't, yeah, this is, um, he sends him to Herod, and we find this odd fact in verse 12. Why is this here? That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they'd been enemies. True fact. Nice, nice piece of news. Great to hear. Um, Why is this there? Well, it puts us in history. We're reminding us that Luke is a historian and that this is a gospel history. And it grounds it in the Roman story. And if you go and do your research on the Roman history, you'll realize that uh, Herod in the north had a brother who was actually governor over the Jerusalem area, but he was so bad at it that he got voted out and he was considered incompetent. And so the Roman emperor decided to redevelop the leadership structure in Jerusalem and place prefects there of whom Pilate had become one. And so at this point in time, there's kind of in the same empire, two leadership structures not yet getting along, And they became friends that day. 
It's as hi it highlights the turbulence of the Roman Empire, changing government structures. It's hard to get organized and build a justice system when you're going through all of these changes all the time. But that's exactly what the Jewish council had to deal with to get the outcome that they were seeking. And so they went to this Roman system and they thought they'd make the most of the opportunity because you don't know what leadership's going to change day by day in this empire. And uh, in the end, they go to Herod. But they're not succeeding. They're still not succeeding because Herod and Pilate both agree that Jesus has not done something worthy of the death penalty. Verse 14. You brought me this man, said Pilate, as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. And neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us, as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death. So that's the verdict of the Roman leadership. He does not deserve death. It wasn't working for the Jewish leadership. Their best shot was to dial up the volume in hoping that loud shouting would achieve the outcome that they seek. And so verse 18, the whole crowd shouted, away with this man. Release Barabbas to us, verse 21. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him, verse 23. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. Why was Jesus crucified? Not because he was condemned as guilty, but because their shouts prevailed. And the Roman government didn't, care enough about the justice for this one man, Jesus, as they needed to keep the peace. And the Jewish council were so passionate that this Jesus ought to be killed, that their passion was overwhelming. They condemned Jesus as worse than a murderer. If you think about why they would release Barabbas, when it says in verse 19 that he had been thrown into prison for insurrection, He's a troublemaker, and for murder, he's a murderer, and he's the one that goes free. Jesus is worse than a murderer and more troublesome than an insurrectionist. That's the verdict. But is it true? Is Jesus really worse than Barabbas? Well, in the end, Jesus was the one crucified, and Barabbas was set free. But what if Jesus is the Messiah? What if it's true? What if he really is that king? That's the question we need to consider. And if you go back through history, you'll see that there's reasons why members of the Jewish com community may have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. If I could take Rambam, the infamous Jewish rabbi of the 12th century, also known as Maimonides in the English-speaking world, he explains why many Jews down the generations have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. He puts it like this, can there be a greater stumbling block than Christianity? All the prophets spoke of Messiah as the Redeemer of Israel and their Savior who would gather their dispersed and strengthen their observance of the mitzvot, the commandments, 
In contrast, Christianity caused the Jews to be slain by the sword, their remnants to be scattered and humbled, and the Torah to be altered, and the majority of the world to err and serve a God other than the Lord. In other words, Jesus does not fit the expectation because the Messiah is meant to gather the Jews, but Christianity has scattered the Jews through persecution. The Messiah is meant to bring righteous observance of the Mosaic law, but Christianity has apparently altered the Mosaic law or taken us away from the Mosaic law. The Messiah is meant to lead people to serve God, but Christianity has set up an idol. Rambam adds this punchline. If he, the so-called Messiah did not succeed to this degree or was killed, he surely is not the redeemer promised by the Torah. Any Messiah who died cannot be the Messiah. That doesn't fit the bill. Very powerful critique. And instead of responding to each point, which is hours and hours of conversation that I hope that we might take up with love with our Jewish neighbours. But instead of defending each point, I want to finish by offering some insights about why, even though Jesus is not the Messiah they were expecting, he's worthy of our attention and all people's attention. Is Jesus the Messiah? Well, this is the, the Gospel of Luke, and Luke's story takes us through to express that Jesus really is the Messiah. We would have seen this if we'd started at the beginning of Luke and read the way through what we realize is that when Jesus is born, angels appear and announce, whoa, he is the Messiah. And then when Simeon meets Jesus at the temple as a child, you might remember this story, that he takes him in his arms and says, whoa, this is the consolation of Israel. This is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. And he can rest in peace because he's met the Messiah that he, by the Holy Spirit, had been told he would meet. When Jesus began his ministry, at the very beginning of his ministry, he, he was in the synagogue and he read the scriptures, he read the Torah, he read the Old Testament and he read the writings and the prophets. But one particular day, Isaiah 61, uh, Yeshayahu 61, he said, Today this is fulfilled in your hearing. He read the scriptures, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back and said, Today this is fulfilled, claiming that he brings the fulfillment And then when you watch the things that he does over the next numbers of chapters of this gospel, we see Jesus doing all the pictures of Isaiah in his own lifestyle, from healing the sick, uh, opening the eyes of the blind, cleansing people from leprosy, telling them to go to the temple to offer the sacrifices and to uh, uh, to, to be a witness to the local Jewish community. But the the Jewish leadership could not accept him. They could not accept Jesus. And Luke gives us four reasons why they rejected Jesus. Firstly, he spent too much time with sinners. Chapter 5, verse 30. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They asked him. And when we see in the story Jesus defending himself, he explains that it's actually the sick that need a doctor or those who are... uh, who are in sin that need saving. He came to help people away from sin and back to God. That's why he spent time with sinners, not because he condoned sin. Secondly, they rejected Jesus because he broke the Sabbath. Chapter 6, verse 2. Why are you doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? They asked him. We remember that the things Jesus did on the Sabbath, as told in Luke's Gospel, 
is to heal and to help and to save and to bind and to bring the brokenhearted to wholeness. And when they critiqued him, he sought to express the intent of God in the Sabbath in the Old Testament and that this was perfectly aligned and that the Jewish community were making up extra traditions that went beyond Scripture. He also criticized the religious leaders, and that's one of the reasons they rejected him as well. It's not nice to be criticized. Chapter 11, verse 45. When you say these things, you insult us. Jesus was calling out the hypocrisy in their lives just as they were calling out what they felt was hypocrisy in his life. The last reason they rejected Jesus is he seemed to claim too much for himself. Chapter 5, verse 21. Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? This one who heals and then claims authority to forgive sins. This is reserved for God alone. In some ways, they thought Jesus was claiming too much for the Messiah. In other words, they thought Jesus was claiming too little. In the end, they reject the Messiah because Jesus as Messiah because he's not the Messiah they were expecting. And here we are in a church, and sometimes we look out and we think, why don't more people see it? It seems so obvious that Jesus fits the prophecies, that he's like the center of the scriptures, that all things hang off him. And we wonder to ourselves, why don't the Jewish community nearby see Jesus as the Messiah and the one who fits this so beautifully? But it's because Jesus didn't give them what they were expecting. No one was expecting what Jesus did, not even his own followers. Jesus said to his own followers, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? He had to suffer? What is that? His own followers weren't ready for that. They couldn't understand that. Even though it was in the scriptures, they weren't prepared for that kind of Messiah. They, like the other Jewish people, were expecting someone who'd gather the people physically in that, like, hill, on that hill that's still there today, that right now has a mosque on it in the old city of Jerusalem, and the Jewish community wail at the wall of the old temple that was destroyed because they're waiting for this restoration of this particular hill. Jesus didn't fit the expectation. But then after three days dead, followed by an empty tomb and resurrection from the dead, Jesus alive, appearing to many, the Holy Spirit was poured out on many and Jew after Jew put their faith in Messiah Jesus and they went from synagogue to synagogue to tell everyone, here he is, the Messiah is alive and to show people from Scripture that they ought to believe Jesus is the Messiah. But Jesus is such an unexpected Messiah. And whether you see it or not, whether you see him as Messiah or you can't see it, doesn't make it true or false. Whether you see it or not, believe it or not, doesn't make it true or false. It just shows what role you play in God's story. Because doubt is part 
of the fulfillment and doubt is part of the truth. And I want to show you with one last passage from the Old Testament, the Messianic prophecy of Isaiah 53, that doubt and rejection and trial and death and resurrection are part of the picture of the expectation for this Messiah. So let's go back to Isaiah 53, a Messianic prophecy. And this fits the context for Luke. It starts by explaining that doubt is going to be there about the Messiah. It says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So the prophecy expects people to doubt and say, Who is this guy? This guy doesn't look the kind of Messiah I was expecting. It goes on in the same chapter about the trial of Jesus. He was of the Messiah to come. He was despised and rejected. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. The Messiah would be judged on trial and condemned. That's fulfilled in our passage today. But the Isaiah 53 passage keeps going. It talks about the death of the Messiah. It says, He was assigned a grave with the wicked, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. The Messiah would suffer and die according to God's will. This is God's plan. And lastly, speaking of the resurrection, Isaiah 53, and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life. So death is for an offering for sin, and life is the result. Life for many, and life for the Messiah. We see that doubt, death, Rejection, resurrection are all part of the prediction. So what part of God's story will you play? Because if you reject him, you fulfill that part of the story of all those who cannot see it and reject him. But if you receive him, you fulfill that part of the story that brings salvation and life. The rejection of the Messiah is the symbol of the Messiah. The fact that Jesus was rejected shows that he is indeed the Messiah. And so I wonder how you're going to leave today, tonight. This whole story is going to have a different impact on you depending on the attitude you bring to it. If you come like the Jewish leadership, predetermined to reject him, and you offer him an unfair trial, you may walk away angry that Jesus could be claiming to be the Messiah. And you may walk away, if you're less religious, just a little bored or unaffected. I mean, who is this guy anyway? It's 2,000 years ago. But if you come with open hearts and open eyes to look to see, could this truly be the Messiah? Then you'll leave today moved by the story of the injustice that he experienced out of love for you and me, thankful for his endurance and ready to celebrate Easter.
we approach Easter this week. And for those of us who celebrate Easter, we see our Messiah dying on the cross to bring us salvation, forgiveness, and eternal life. This is good news. By his wounds, we are healed. So our respect to the Jewish community and our prayer at this Easter is that each of us here and all of our neighbours might see Jesus and see the King who is the Messiah. Amen. Oh, hey, um, why don't you grab out your phones and grab up Sladoo? And while you do that, I would love for you, Elliot, to share a little bit about how your relationship with your Jewish neighbours began. Oh, um, well, they're friendly and uh, <laughs> started with a very talkative, friendly Jewish neighbour, actually. Um, no, uh, part of it is uh, we have good news. Uh, if we're convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, we think that's good news for all people and we want to share that. So we seek to uh, not only love people in life generally, but we seek to love people with the good news. And so I just, my habit is to be praying for my neighbours on my street and trying to get to know them. And um, uh, one Jewish neighbour had a flood, so I went and helped him dig a trench <laughs> and we became friends. So good. What a great habit yeah. to have. But they're very nice to me. I mean, uh, they invite me around. This weekend, one of them showed me around the house as to their Passover setup, and they have about 40 chairs in their living room, and they're all laid out for all their guests because Passover for the Jewish community is it's really big. It's like for us Easter or Christmas with our families, this is Passover right now. And it's seven days or it's a week long but it's the first kind of period of 24 hours from sundown last night, which is the big celebration. Awesome. Good to hear. Um, we'll start with our top question. Um, why did public opinion about Jesus turn so quickly from Palm Sunday to the crucifixion? Uh, why did non-Pharisees petition so hard for his death? It seems so rando. I think they forgot the M. Rando. Uh, there's some... There's some good thoughts in there and maybe a few assumptions that I hadn't made myself in the question. That is, um, uh, to what extent does this represent all Jews that are petitioning in the crowd at that particular moment? And uh, we started in our story today in Luke. Um, we had, it was a, a particular council of elders. Uh, I asked last week a question actually on Slidu um, about... Nigel mentioned last week that there were hundreds of people that came to arrest Jesus and I was interested to find a little bit more about that. I'm interested to hear more about how many people are involved. But uh, I see this as if you have a chief priests and teachers of the law, which number quite a lot of people, that, you know, if you think of the Sanhedrin as, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, ministers in the room and others, but uh, I understand that there were 70 people in that particular community, plus there's others involved that are led by them. And all I, I could just imagine if a leadership believes something, many people come for that journey. Hmm. Uh, yeah, but I don't think this represents all Jews in the entire region. It's just a dominant force. That's the best I can do off the top of my head. Great. Thank you. Um... I'm going to save the top question for last because it's a great question. Um, you elaborated this a tiny bit 
in the sermon, but it's a good one to think a bit more about. Um, why does Jesus not answer directly that he is the Messiah? Yeah, there's, um, well, uh, an obvious comment to make would be from the Isaiah reference where he did not open his mouth. There was a sense in which, uh, like a sheep going to the slaughter, he was silent. That's the expectation. But more than that, um, uh, well, there's a couple of things. Uh, I like a comment that I heard from James during the week, another one of our ministers. Oh, he's been leading the service tonight. Great, everyone knows James. Um, James made a comment this week that in his humanity, he is about to be crucified. He's just been sweating blood, basically, in the Garden of Gethsemane going into this moment. We've got to remember that he's being beaten up and all of these things. And as he gets to this moment, yes, there's him being deliberate, but he's also stealing himself for the crucifixion. So as he prepares, he says, you're not going to believe me. What's the defense that he's seeking to make here? I think he's putting it back on the questioner. There's a lot of different interpretations as to what he's actually saying when he says, you say that I am. Is it, you say that I am and I actually quite agree with you. You say that I am, but mm, that's your words, not mine. You say that I am and I make no comment. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. Um, we know in the Gospel of Mark that even though he uses this back to you language, he also is a bit more explicit in the Gospel of Mark, I am. Mm. And so I think in the whole story, there's an affirmation even in his silence. He's not, re- he's not denying this truth. He is the Messiah, but he's at that point where he's about to be crucified. Mm. Cool. Um... I wonder if you have any insights into this. I'd be interested. How does Judaism understand or explain Isaiah 53? Well, uh, I think the best thing to do at that point is to say, I'm not the best person to answer that. (laughs) Um, But what I would encourage us to do is, it's very easy to go and learn about people's religious views in the classroom. You go and do a course on Buddhism or some other thing. But I've always said... Don't go to Christians to learn about other religions. Go to people. You know, go and meet your neighbour and ask them. It's, re- it's really not that difficult. If you go and ask your neighbour what Passover means, they'll tell you, and it's, it's a good thing that they want to share about. And so maybe, well, I'm hoping that my neighbours would be interested enough to interact with my talk tonight and that I could ask them what's their response based on Isaiah 53. Mm. So that would be cool. Stay tuned for a fuller answer, maybe. Oh, now the pressure's on. (laughs) Um, Off the back of that, someone's asked, how can we be reaching out to those in the Jewish community to help them see the truth? If we um, take things like tonight and just hit send with no relationship, I think it's not as effective because we share our beliefs out of love and... At the end of the day, I mean, in 2009, we went around the entire suburb of St. Ives knocking on doors and saying, hey, we're from the local church. We'd love to talk to you about this stuff. And as a result of 600 homes that we door knocked, because there was no relationship, we saw the scrolls on the doors of Jewish homes and they said, no, I'm Jewish, no thanks. It didn't, it didn't really eventuate into any positive, constructive conversation. Yeah. So... Uh, very different. Um, my Jewish neighbours are inviting me to stuff and 
they're happy to come. One of my neighbours was gracious to come along to the Share Life Sundays last, last year. He asked a question. So I think uh, the way that I view uh, reaching out in this moment, in this time, with so much post-Christian heritage is that uh, in the context of love, trust, and inquisitive questions that want to get to know people, they also in turn want to be open with us. So I'd say that that is key if we want to go anywhere with anyone in depth. Yeah, for sure. And this last question is an absolute cracker. Um, If I want to accept Jesus as my king for the first time, what do I do? Oh, yes. (laughs) I'm ready to pray. If If that's you tonight... Uh, it may be more than one if it gets pushed up to the top. My well, prayer is, it's 53, so... Yeah, my prayer that there's a lot of people that are saying that's a good question. It is a good my question. prayer is that a lot of people that are ready to receive Jesus as Messiah, I'd like to pray about that. Very simply, if you receive in your heart and believe and you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. He is your saviour if you receive him. So why don't we pray? Let's do that. Oh, our Lord, it's beautiful to look at Jesus and see someone who fulfills all the expectations. We turn in faith. We seek that he might save us. We admit that whether we were more like the Jewish leaders rejecting him or more like those that just sat back and didn't say a word, that we haven't been respecting Jesus. We seek to turn that around. Lord, please help us to trust Jesus, to receive him as our Messiah. And, oh, Jesus, would you cleanse us and save us and redeem us and heal us. We thank you for your promises that you will honour that. And we look to the crucifixion and we see peace and healing. So we commit our lives to you, May you help us rejoice in our salvation. Amen. Um, If you prayed that prayer for the first time, um, or if that was you asking that question and you'd like to chat about it further, um, please do find a friend uh, to chat about it with, uh, or come and find me, find Elliot, find James. There's a multitude of people here who'd really love to talk about that with you further.